What I found particularly egregious about what was happening at Hay House was that they were a place that it wasn't just a publisher. It wasn't just a business. It was advertising, marketing itself as a healing community. And that's where they crossed the line because it wasn't healing. It was very destructive. It was very racist. It was very exclusive. Hi, I'm Abby Gibb and welcome to the Full Body Fuck Yes podcast, a Soulfire production. This is an investigation and honoring of who we get to become in the process of embodying our dreams. If you're a rule breaker, paradigm shifter, and movement maker of today, then this leadership podcast is for you. It's time to finally take up more room on the page of your life. Welcome to the Full Body Fuck Yes podcast. Rebecca Baruki, better known as Bex, was a Hay House darling with worldwide success just as the ink was about to dry on her next multi-book deal with the company. The CEO's response was, you need to understand that we cater to an affluent audience. You know exactly what that means. It's not that you're catering to just rich white people. You're also shutting everybody else out because you don't think that they have value. The truth came crashing down on her. Mother to five, Beck says she only had one choice, leave and start her own publishing house. Not just one, but two. Wheat Penny Press creates children's books with kids of color, varying disabilities, and gender identities as the main character. Row House Publishing brings once marginalized voices and authors to the forefront. We are not looking to be some small indie publisher. Like We want to compete. We want to force the hands of the big guys to do the right thing, and then in turn, do better and force us to show up better. We also discuss how her 10-year-old trans son has given Bex permission to find herself more deeply and lead more freely. It's really easy for me to be like, fuck all y'all who aren't with this because I'm having a good time. Before we begin, if you're ready to turn your personal story into a global movement, then I can help. The Media Visibility Accelerator is the number one marketing course for purpose-driven entrepreneurs like you who want to scale your business to $25,000 consistent months. Yes, even and especially without a big following, team, or time. Get $500 off the course right now with the code POD500. This discount will only be available for one week. The link are in the show notes and my Instagram. Now to Bex. There's a couple facets to this conversation that I just want to like jump right into the deep end of this. Number one, your pronouns. Can we talk about your pronouns? She, they. Yeah. Can I understand a little bit more about why you personally chose to have she, they versus she, her? Oh, well, because I am definitely not. I've never been a girl. I'll say that I've never been a girl and I'm, I don't feel fully like a woman as I would define you know, it's not even as I would design, you know, this is, this is evolving. This is evolving. This, this pronoun thing for me, because there's what a woman is in society, which I don't want to buy into or subscribe to. Um, but for some reason it just, the title doesn't, it doesn't sit with me. Yeah. I'll, I, woman feels more right than 
girl. Like when I was a girl, I never felt like a girl. And she, you know, I've been using it for a while. It feels fine. People say that it would definitely not feel right. If someone said he, um, they feels the most appropriate, but you know, I'm just easing into it. Um, which I think is a really amazing opportunity that I have never felt before in my life. And having a trans son, I'm learning a lot about identity through him and the way he perceives gender and the way he embraces his own gender. So I think that I'm going to give my per- myself permission to, you know, play with it for a while because I, there's so much unpacking to do, right? There's so I don't much. even know what I feel. <laughs> there's so much unpacking to do with it. And that's what I was going to ask you is because when did that sort of start? Did that start when your son came out as yeah. trans and it started to help you make that identity shift. What, what really well, see, happened? That's the thing. Sunny wasn't, Sunny didn't come out as trans. Sunny was born trans, right? Yeah. Like that's, Right. Yeah, that's uh, true. Thank you moment, for helping me see that. Yeah. Well, truly from the moment that he could walk, um, talk, express himself in any way that was like independent from us, he was expressing himself as a boy. Okay. And when he started to talk, he would say things like, I want to be a boy, or he would draw himself as a boy. He always rejected traditionally, you know, female clothes. And I'm throwing up the bunny ears because I still don't even really know what to call it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? that stuff is. Yeah. That they put in the girl section. Um, so yeah. he always rejected that from the very, very beginning. And so I started to think back to my childhood and I always had short hair I was always like one of the boys. They would call me a tomboy. It's a term that I always hated because I'm like, I can be a girl and do these things. I was the exact same way. <laughs> They'd say I was a tomboy. And I was like, look, I just want to do everything that all kids do. Right. So I'm, I'm not wear... like a boy. No. I'm me doing these things. Exactly. But, but that's what people would have called me. Yeah. I was tall. I was lanky. I was flat chested. I looked a little bit like Ralph Macchio. Like, you know, <laughs> <kid> <laughs> So people mistook me for a boy and okay. would call me a junior and son until I was 14 years old. And I started to develop, you know, my secondary sex traits. So I thought back, you know, looking at Sonny's experience and wondered, you know, who would I be? What would I call myself? Yeah. If we lived in a genderless society or we didn't gender children right, right out the gate. So I don't think I would have ever picked girl for me. It doesn't, it it never made sense to me. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that's where I am. And and it's so interesting with Sunny, you know, I, Sunny was baby number four and I went to a midwife who didn't have routine sonograms. She didn't prescribe them. And I really, really wanted to know the sex of the baby. I always found out and I said, I really, I want to go. And she's like, well, you're just gonna have to pay for it because we don't. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, like not our jam. Can, yeah. You know, do what you wish. And we did, but you know, before we went, she said, you know, you can find out what you're going to get, but never who you're going to get. Ooh. And that was Sunny. Yeah. And it was almost prophetic. So when Sonny came and started to develop and he was, we allowed him very freely to do so. I maybe pushed back once when he said, I want to be a boy. And I'm like, well, I don't really know how that's going to happen, but (laughs) we, but we just allowed it. And he's so much a boy and he's so happy. He's so in this thing of like what he calls being a boy. He's so confident. So I I say out of my five kids, he's the most well-adjusted. 
for real. Wow. Wow. So yeah. What I love about that is how beautiful for all of us. And I think this is a part that's a really nice transition into one of the multitude of reasons why this world loves you so much. It's so interesting to me that when one person, the yep, world, yep, yep, a lot of people do not love me that I know. So it's definitely a lot of people, a lot of people love you, Bex. A lot of people love you. Let's just call a spade a spade. And you have some angry Karens with pitchforks for sure in your DMs on the daily. But I don't know what their names are, but yeah, they do come for me. They do. They definitely <laughs> they come for you. I'm in there too sometimes fighting, fighting them back. I feel like, uh, when I, when I see it, but what I was going to say is I find it so fascinating, my friend, that isn't it beautiful how the moment any of us of any age, give ourselves permission to live and be freely and fully expressed. It gives mm-hmm. everyone else around us that same permission if we let it. And I think that's really beautiful and uh, prophetic about how your own child really freed you in a new way. 100%. Oh, 100%. And, yeah. and following his journey and just witnessing how happy he is and how much he's loved and loved truly because yeah. there's nothing hidden about him. There's no faking it. So the people that are in his life and he's, he's uh, 10 years old. He just turned 10 and he has these little guy friends and we live in a, you know, quote unquote conservative, but like really <laughs> racist town. And, and <laughs> this is town. Call a spade a spade. Yeah. <laughs> so when he um, started telling his classmates when he was seven years old, they were no big deal. Their parents had a problem. Oh, I'm sure. Right. The school was phenomenal. Our church was phenomenal. His dojo, like his, his, uh, guitar teacher, everybody was amazing. So that was great. Our families were amazing, but the, the parents in town weren't so great, but the kids were like, no big deal. And it's, you know, a, a mom came over for a play date the other day. And I'm always nervous about meeting. Yeah, totally. And she was a teacher. And then she said systemic racism. And I was like, Oh wait, you're my oh, people. Yep. So then we, <laughs> <laughs> Is that, that's like our code word, our, our code. Yeah. Hello. Do you want to so, talk about intersectionality um, and systemic racism? Yes. You're my friend. Exactly. Hello. Yeah. Like you're, yeah, you're, you're there, but still, you know, she could just be a progressive white woman and also super true. dangerous. Mm-hmm. But, um, I said, you, you know, about Sunny, right? And she said, no. And I said, well, Sonny's trans. And I said, I think Danny knows her son. And she's like, I don't think he knows. Cause he's never mentioned it to me. And then later she said, yeah, he knows. And the beautiful part about that, she said, the beautiful part about it is that he doesn't think it's a big deal. He didn't think it was a big deal enough to tell me. Yeah. So I was like, oh, look at these kids. Look at these kids. Look at this generation. Look at some hope. Yeah. So, so I see this, I witnessed this and, and look, I've always been wacky. I'm neurodivergent. I have an autism diagnosis. I'm an autistic person. I have ADHD. I have all this stuff going on. And I've always been like the weird kid. I was voted like most individual, like, (laughs) (laughs) and I was always like that fun friend on the fringes of every group. Yeah. But so there's no hiding my wacky, but the older I get, you know, I crossed the 40, I'm going to be 43 uh, next month as we're recording this. And the more I show myself, the more authentic the love is that comes into my life. Yep. The more authentic the experience is, I'm having a great time. I'm braver. I'm more confident. And it's really easy for me to be like, fuck all y'all who aren't with this because I'm having a good time. Yeah, that's no, for real though. Like people ask, people have been asking me recently, like, how do you, 
how do you continue to have the courage to like outgrow versions of yourself and just keep creating and and keep being and i feel like the more you just fall in love with the choices you're making in life and the energy of your life the less you give a shit about anyone else's opinion of it and it seems hilarious Here's the thing, though. I do give big shits about other people's opinions about me, but the people that I actually admire. So exactly. I am being, myself. I am being affirmed by the right people. Yes. I'm being affirmed by my community. And it's not to say I don't want to be like, you know, I'm coming into myself and everything's great. and Everybody loves me. That's not at all true. It does make it easy. There's going to be there is a system that is, you know, <laughs> built to oppress and keep marginalized voices quiet yep. or dissenting voices quiet. So there is that too. It's not all flowers and sunshine. However, though, the core, the core of what drives me, what motivates me, what wakes me up in the morning, my faith has become stronger. Like I just feel better about fighting the good fight. Yeah. So God, and I love it. And I, we're <laughs> all here for it. Let's talk about that fight because the piece that I'm sitting with is how, you know, this podcast is really about who we get to become in the process of creating our dreams and letting those dreams evolve over time. Right. And I've seen such a gorgeous evolution from, you know, the filters of social media for a long time about you. And now to personally know you, it's even better. So uh, let's introduce at least my world. Um, to this incredible human who I just adore. And let's go back a little bit because it's not like you're coming out of the blue. I mean, you had the biggest backing that most people can hope for as authors, like Simon and Schuster, Hay House. Like, let's talk about that process of how you first were even discovered on what was supposed to be the pinnacle of your career. I mean, that's it for most people. That's all they want. And that was just the what, beginning you for you. With Hay House? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. yeah. I would say, of course, we want to dream bigger, but a lot of people are going to say getting a multi-book deal by Hay House kind of hitting the top. And you were like, mm. oh, for me too. I have the fir- a first edition cover, uh, copy of You Can Heal Your Life. Like I'm looking at it right yeah. now. Like that's what I grew up on in my house by Louise Hay for yeah. those who are not house of physiotherapists. I grew up with that thinking like, this is where I want to be. This is who I want to be. And that ideal that's in my head, that still holds true. What I thought it was going to be like, that's still where I want to be. Um, but, you know, first of all, like profiting off of healing, off of medicine, off of things that everyone should have access to has built in problematic aspects to it. So we got to be careful. Like Mm -hmm. I'm, I make money doing this work. However, I think that I do believe that I'm coming from a very different place than a lot of these people who are profiting off of, you know, healing and, um, stuff that they don't practice in real life. Yeah. So that, I don't know if you watch Curb Your Enthusiasm, but the last season, um, Larry David goes into a coffee shop and they don't treat him well. So he opens a spite store, which is basically like he just uses his money to open a next door, like literally yeah. attached to it, another coffee shop. <laughs> I <laughs> like love this. Price and whatever. And I was talking to my husband the other day and I had like a really bad experience in a store. And he's like, well, you should open a spite store. And I was like, I kind of did. You kind of did though. Like, kinda you kind of did though. 
but it's not that. It's and I not. don't want to think that is, but it is a reaction to what I saw um, going wrong. And yeah. being a Hay House author, I had a very intimate up close view of that specifically. Right. So is Hay House unique among the world of publishers and exploiting their um, authors one, but then exploiting their community? No. Yeah, for sure. What not. I found particularly egregious about what was happening at Hay House was that they were a place that it wasn't just a publisher. It wasn't just a business. It was advertising, marketing itself as a healing community. Yeah. And that's where they crossed the line because it wasn't healing. It was very destructive. It was very racist. It was very exclusive. Um, and in fact, I've, I've shared this on social media many times. The beginning of the end of my stint at Hay House was when I asked the CEO in a room full of people why I wasn't seeing more black and brown authors, why I was the brownest person in the room. And anyone who knows me knows that I'm, I ain't that brown. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. My husband says, how do you make your coffee? How do you want your coffee? And I said, like, like my skin color. And he's yeah. like, that's not coffee. <laughs> like, <laughs> I do. The, I do the exact same way. Yeah. Yeah. So, and his response, the CEO's response was, you need to understand that we cater to an affluent audience and anyone who is, you know, who holds a marginalized identity, I think will recognize that, especially as someone who's black or brown or someone who has come from poverty, like me, you know, exactly what that means. It's not that you're catering to just rich white people. You're also shutting everybody else out because you don't think that they have value. Exactly. I mean, let's say that for the back of the room, right? I mean, that's what that means. That's what that means. It's not yeah. just, I'm going to make it for all of the goop moms living in Brentwood, but it also right. means let's shun out everyone else because they don't have equal value. They don't have value. They have nothing that we want. They don't have anything good to say. Um, there was more to that conversation that was equally gross, but I don't, again, like I spent this time, a lot of time talking about Hay House. I think it's important that people know what's going on and they are aware of their gurus and their healers and how they are doing harm in the world. But I'm also hyper-focused on creating the thing that I wanted originally. And exactly. that's Row House. That's my publishing house yeah. that is built on community. It's built on equity. It's built on disruption. It's built on responsibility. You know, like we actually have a, a little um, acronym cred, like street cred, because we're cool like that. Yeah. That means community, <laughs> responsibility, equity, disruption. Yep. And those are our values. And, um, it shows through our contracts. It shows through the authors that we've chosen and their stories. It shows in the way that we show up online as a company, but also as individuals. And I'm just really amped for it. For me, it's the perfect publisher, but it will get better. <laughs> it's going to be, it's already amazing. It's going to continue to be amazing because it has you at the helm. I want, I want to, you know, elaborate a little bit more or pull this out for a second between the point of where in that moment, which we, all of us that were in some other type of industry at the pinnacle of our career have that one moment where we essentially are the David and Goliath. We stand up to the head of that industry and say, this doesn't sit well. This is not okay with us. Right. And then normally, right, in our books, keynotes, and podcasts, we then just skip over to the next thing that we created. Can we though, for a hot second, talk about the hot minute between when we tell everyone to go fuck themselves. And then when we create our next thing, can you just tell us a little bit more about what that journey, how long was it? How did you come up with row house? Was there crying under a comforter? Did you emotionally eat on the kitchen floor? Like, or was it like literally the next day? Like, what did that look like? 
Well, I'm about to fuck up what you were just saying. Cause it was literally the next day. Yeah. See, this is why it I want to know. Yeah. I had a meeting with, with the um, vice president of Hay house and my agent there. Um, it was kind of a last ditch, ditch effort to, to save my contract that I was right about to sign. Right. My, I mean, my, you my had a lot, a lot on the line. So, I mean, yes. And yes, you know, in different ways. <laughs> yeah. So it was a lot on the line. If I left a lot on the line, if I stayed. Exactly. So I, you know, I was really trying to save my job and save my community at the same time. And it was just their utter refusal or lack of acknowledgement of the power they had to make that change. You know, I said, okay, well, I'm gone. And then, um, I think it was like a Tuesday or something. It was, it was like a weekday. So I was like, I want to post about it tonight. Cause I just need to get it off my chest and I want to share with my audience and I want them to know why. Yeah. Um, but I was like, no one's really going to see this because it's like a weeknight and no one looks at my social media. It blew up. People were sharing it. People were sharing their own experiences. It was really beautiful. People were um, emailing me from their private accounts that work for Hay House. And were like, yes, me too. Like yep. all of that. And then the very next day, um, my, my good friend, Kristen McGinnis, who was also the editor of, of my second book, Managing the Motherlode. She texted me and she said, Hey, why don't you just start your own Hay House? And then me, just... I'm like, sure, we'll call it Bay House. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, like Bay, like Boo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she ignored me for a little while. It went over her head at first. And then she was just like, oh, I don't know. Rebecca sounds a little crazy. And um, <laughs> came back and she's like, all right, well, well, like, let's talk about this. And I would say within a couple of weeks, we had our business plan. We had meetings with the CFO, COO of Simon & Schuster, which was her personal contact. So this is... 20 years of networks, yep. contacts, hard work, building relationships, also privilege, access. A lot went into this recipe to make it as successful as it was. Mm-hmm. I mean, Kristen is a blonde white woman who worked in publishing for 20 years. Like she's she's got credibility and access. Right. So she came on board um, and saying like, I just, I just want to help you get this started. I don't want money. I don't want part of the business. I don't want anything. She has since become such an integral part of the business that I begged her to stay. And she's a, a, a minority partner and, um, you know, helping us, you know, get the whole thing started over the first couple of years as a consultant. But uh, yeah, it was the next day and I didn't think about it. And I now was, what is like seven months later, I'm sitting last night telling my husband, like, I don't, what did I do? And I don't know if I know what I'm doing. And I don't know if I'm, you know, all that stuff of growing up where, you know, I lived in a house where I didn't know if I was going to have the electric the next day. I didn't know if I was going to eat. I turned on the lights and cockroaches were scurrying everywhere. Like I did not have nice things. I didn't know people who did. And now I'm in this place where my dreams are coming true. And I'm like, is this for me? Like I'm having all the stuff that I should have thought in the beginning, but thank God I didn't because now I'm here, but I'm scared. I'm, I'm confident that I know what I'm doing because I've always stepped up to the plate, but there's still that little pang of the universe isn't going to let me have this because this isn't, I am not the affluent audience. Uh-huh. Yeah. I am not. Right. So the story of yeah. who am I, right? Like I didn't come from this. I don't look like that. So why me? Like, I feel deserving by God. And, you know, I am a faithful person and I talk about my faith a lot. I feel like I was made for a purpose on purpose. Like I'm here to do this thing. 
but I'm like, is the world going to let me, you know, Ooh. it's like, not even is the yeah. universe not going to let me have this, yeah. is the world going to let me have this? Cause I still feel in a lot of ways, like I need permission to do this mm-hmm. because taking it the hard way makes people real, real angry. Like the publishing industry is not happy that we're giving a flat rate, $40,000 advance and 40% royalty share to every one of our authors. They don't like that. We're even talking about how much our authors make. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, because why? I mean, I'm, I don't want to fill in the blanks. Because they're not doing that. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> <laughs> their practices ding, ding, ding. aren't fair. They're not equitable. They don't set their authors up for success. They give so much money to authors who don't need it and like no money to the authors who could really use it. It keeps voices suppressed. They have gatekeepers. They have agents. They have all these different ways that you will never be able to get your book published. And it really is, um, you know, systemically it's broken. There are individuals in publishing who are beautiful people doing beautiful work and getting like good names out there but they have their limitations because they don't own the game. So we are not looking to be some small indie publisher. Like we want to compete. We want to force the hands of the big guys to do the right thing. And then in turn, do better and force us to show up better. Exactly. That's all. That's, you know, just a couple things. That's all. (laughs) (laughs) Just rewriting all of the publishing industry (laughs) single-handedly from her kitchen. This is you my know? studio. I'll have you tell my converted garage. <laughs> you shit. I love you so much. I love you so much. And here's one of the 6,000 reasons. See, I told you is because you just go for it and you ask questions later. What choice do we have? Exactly. Die. Thank you. On a, on a serious note, like people who know me know this, people who don't know me in 2011, February, 2011, I lost my stepdad, who was a big part of my life from the time I was nine years old to that point. Mm-hmm. Um, in 2013, I lost both the parents who raised me seven months apart. My dad in April, my mother in November. Soon after that, I lost my biological father. Like people, I, I found my mother-in-law dead the day after Christmas with my ex-husband just before that. Like Fuck. people were, I was losing people and it felt so out of control. I didn't know what to do other than just detach and not in an unhealthy way, but really detach from all the ideas I had about the way things were supposed to be and mm. just be in life. So I gave up contracts. I put us in debt. I did a lot of dumb things. I got pregnant again right away after my mom died. Um, I did a lot of things that were to kind of just like allow me to grasp onto what I wanted, to hunker down, to get quiet. But what continued the residue of that is that I saw people die with dreams in them. You know, Wayne Dyer says, don't die with a dream inside you. And I saw that happen. I found my mother's watercolors that she didn't even tell anybody about because she was too afraid. And she was, she had more artistic talent in her pinky than I'll ever hope to cultivate in my entire life. My dad was a songwriter, but how he made a living was he climbed on roofs and charged too little. So we always lived in poverty. So like, I saw this and I'm like, that is just not going to be me. And one thing, and I'm, I'm okay, we're going to church now. Yeah. One thing, like, my hold on. Told me, <laughs> when I was five years old, and I wrote about this in my second book. She said, you have a direct connection to God that no man or minister can stand between. When you talk, he hears you. And when he speaks, it's right to you for yes. you. Yes. And that just for the rest of my life, I'm like, okay, there's haters. And yes, I get down on myself. And yes, I feel like I don't belong because sometimes I don't, sometimes people don't want me there, 
there's all these things that are true, but what is also true is that I was put here on purpose for a purpose. And I'm not going to let people tell me no. I'm scared of it. Because <laughs> I'm kind of like, all right. But then I'm going to go in the back door and get it. You know, just like when I was a teen mom, a high school dropout, taking my friend Jenny Sanchez, walking down to Toys R Us and stealing diapers out the back door because we just had to do what we had to do to survive and get the things that we needed and wanted for the people that we love. Like there's no difference. Like that's what I'm doing now. I can't believe I just admitted to stealing diapers. It was a dark time. (laughs) You had to do what you had to do. You had to do cigarettes because we didn't want anyone to see us like smoking and being mom. So we would smoke cigarettes like behind Toys R Us and be stealing diapers (laughs) and desitin because desitin is diaper rash creep. Yeah. Very expensive. You had to do what you had to do. You had to do what you had to do. Donna Winona, who's 23 and would be mortified by everything I'm saying right now. Cause she's Sorry. like a biologist living in Seattle. That's right. I remember you telling me about her. <laughs> she's, she is all buttoned up and put together and see, look how beautiful. Look at what you raised. That's your work. I love Winona. We have almost an identical personality with like such big differences in opinion, other than politics and social values. Like right. we really... We share that, but she's a, she's a funny person. Isn't that so funny how, how your kids turn out? It is funny. It's just, it's such a crapshoot. It's, it's such a crapshoot. I wanted, I want to sit with that because obviously you have, I mean, hearing that, right. Y'all, if you're, if you're like, wait, she said what? She just dropped that in there. Like minor little detail. I was single mom, pulled myself into that position. Then I left Hay House right as I'm about, you know, ink is not even about to dry. Right. Start this next publishing company. Okay. Wait, trying to get, if you're just catching up, that's, that's part, only part of Bex's story. What has happened in the last seven months to you, the human being in creating Row House? You've said, you know, I've, I'm just stepping into it. I know I can figure this out. And that is all it really takes. But who have you become? Personally and professionally. uh, I'll start with professionally. I was a person, and this bleeds over into personal, but I was a person who has those those identities as teen mom, high school dropout. Um, I've been in the system as a mother of three. Like I was on food stamps not that long ago, you know, in my life. And I thought that I just did not belong in the rooms that I was trying to step into. And, and again, that's very true in some, in some regards. Like I was in the Simon and Schuster building the other day and security tried to get me to go twice. They're like, are you sure you're here for somebody? (laughs) (laughs) I was like, are my fresh Prince of Bel-Air pants too loud for you? I did love those pants. What did you call it? The stoner nineties aesthetic? Oh, those are my tropical pants. Oh, I'm sorry. Fresh Prince pants. But yeah, it is. It's the high 90s when you're dressing for the high 90s. I love the high 90s. (laughs) I love a good stoner 90s film, by the way. So good. So Yeah. So, um, you know, I had this, this, you know, my identity didn't mesh with corporate America. It didn't mesh with like doing deals and getting the respect of these people. That has since changed. Now I'm speaking to like in this short seven month period, I'm speaking to entrepreneur, um, bachelor's degree programs. I just got invited by Montclair state university to talk about their, you know, most exciting women, 
entrepreneurs of 2022. So like all of this yes. like simple stuff. Yes. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm the exact type of person that does this. Cause I'm also starting to meet like really strange and wonderful people. I know. Like so that's good. who does the thing, right? So, so that's been really fun. Well, let's so just sit with that for one second and just remind right. everyone at home. That's who does the thing. That's why you listen to this podcast. That's why, because it's the reminder that it's the weirdos. Yeah. It's the autistic six foot tall, loud weirdo standing with her nineties <laughs> middle of the crowd track suit, stoner pants. That's probably going to be the one. And, and I mean this in all sincerity, mm-hmm. there is a paradigm shift happening. There is a major change. Mm-hmm happening and it's being led by incredible humans like you it's being led by all those who were once by better people than me because i have my we all do. my icons and my mentors and and better people than me and what's really beautiful about the paradigm shift that's happening it's that it's you know it's always been happening we wouldn't have you know, just for the fact that black people are still here, right. Means that there were the most incredible people fighting the good fight. Yes. Both in small, like in their families and communities, and then out there in the world to make that happen. So what's really beautiful about this time now is that we have social media, we have the internet, we have access to information and we're able to collaborate and start these huge movements like black lives matter. My goodness. Like it's incredible what they've been able to do. And the awareness that has been, I mean, there's like Black Lives Matter lawn signs. (laughs) I know. And, you know, performative or no. Finally. The awareness that is here. Yes. And it's, it's not, it's not passive. It's not like, you know, we're in the age of Aquarius. It's that hardworking people and their messages are finally being spread like wildfire and being seen and accepted and like, you know, I will always bow down to, especially like, cause it was my, my uncle who was, you know, marching and getting black voter registration happening down in the South and in the sixties, like those people, like they did the hard work, the hard work. And for everyone who has feet on the ground. Right. And why I'm bringing up to the racial justice movement and social justice movement is because every single thing that we do, everything I do is touched by that. Absolutely. Like politics touches everything. So even in publishing, like this is very much a racial and social justice issue that I'm trying to tackle with, with my publishing. A hundred percent, because it's without, it's the marginalized voices that have to be heard in this, in order to have the true paradigm shift Mm -hmm. in order to be able to see systemic change. Those that have been the most oppressed have not been heard from. Hello. I mean, Mm -hmm. Look at who's running these, the major book publishers. There's only like five. Yeah. And I would venture to say that's where the most beauty is, is in these marginalized voices and communities, because when you have everything, it's like white man mediocrity. When you have everything, the what's what, I mean, are you really striving? If you're already considered the best, are you trying hard? So it's the people that have so little that are being the most creative, the most proactive about going out and getting theirs, the most um, industrious yeah. and inventive. So like, let me hang out 
you know, every, every once in a while I get sad and I feel like, you know, I get that whole like shame about like, I'm not good enough or I don't know enough, but then I like hang out with my people again. And I'm like, Oh, but wait, I'm so lucky. But wait, but <laughs> I, look at who I'm with. Oh, my family is the best family. So I, I, I'm okay. Yeah. Yeah. You're more than okay. And I want to, I want to sit with this larger narrative here in a second, but let's circle back. Uh, I sound like I'm making a TPS report. Uh, let's circle back now um, to to this evolution. You're welcome. You're welcome for that one. We are so 90s. We're so 90s. Told our age many times. Already. Time. Already. The poor Gen Z, if there's like two of you that are listening, are like, what the fuck are they saying? Can TPS. I, can look I it look it up? You just say YouTube that we shit. We weren't able to do that. Okay. We didn't even have that. Thank you. Wait a minute. Let's, okay. Let's touch on that for a second okay. though. Slow information was also a really good time. Oh, really Remember good time. And that like CD or that cassette tape that was just like, Oh, this is the jam or, and like, really, you were the only person that knew about this artist and it had to spread slow and you were cool because you knew them from back when it's, I had the tapes. Like, I had like the mixed tapes that my friends would like bootleg make of a concert <laughs> we couldn't get into. And I know this is over like a large portion of people's heads right now, but there was a time y'all welcome back to where we couldn't access music at any time. And you had to be a certain age to like mm -hmm. hear new music because you had to go see it live. And so people would bootleg record on a tape, a cassette mm -hmm. youngins. And that's how I heard. That's how I first heard the beastie boys. Uh, I heard happening. Sorry, during this podcast because I want to show you, which your viewers cannot see. But shut up! <laughs> Look at this holy grail. All right, if you're just listening, she opened up a cabinet drawer and no shit, hand a Bible. It's full of tapes. <laughs> tapes, y'all. Wait, pick a couple up. Box over there on my wall. The same one I had. It was new old stock. I found the same one I got when I was seven years old shut for my birthday. Up. See it in my Zara books. She has a little pink boom box in her yes, bedroom. She does. Pick up two tapes just randomly. Tell me what the tapes are. Give it to me. All right, okay, let me like right. close my eyes. Close your eyes. This is the best game ever. In oh gosh. Bex's mixtape history. and Roses Lies. Stop. Ben's Roses Lies. Amazing. And Fleetwood Mac. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's nice. That's nice. Those are like, those are some nice ones you'd find at a random ass yard sale. Wait a minute though. Candyman. Ain't no shame in my game. Ain't Remember no. Candyman? Y'all, that is where it came from. Ain't no shame in my game. God, I love you. She's like, oh, hold on. Let me just randomly pull out a box of tapes <laughs> with my pink boom box. I had yeah, a, yeah, yeah, I had yeah. a boom box on my, um, my bike as a kid. I thought I was literally the shit. Like I had like an, like a nineties Alexa y'all pretty much taped, <laughs> like duct taped to the top of my bike. And I was like, yeah, you're, you're welcome. Y'all I bring the tunes wherever I go. My goodness. But I think that that's really, um, I, it, it's, Oh, I'm trying to think like why this is relevant. I just want to talk about 90s. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll talk about the 90s. I just, it was a glorious time. Y'all, we had to like wait for a phone call. Wait I mean, for a phone call. I had one of those clear phones that lit up that you could see all the parts. Yes, inside. I played I had my oh. own line. I was real cool in my house as a teenager. Own I had my own line. Um, I had my little answering machine. But no, what? I think what's really and why I'm excited about this time. And I think why I look at the internet 
and I could, I mean, I'm not going to make broad generalizations that people my age think this way about the internet, but why I love it is because information was hard and access was hard. And my parents were activists. They weren't political in the way that like, they didn't even vote, which is a whole other thing that we'll talk about it. They were like, like, we didn't say the Pledge of Allegiance. They were not like, yeah, part of- <laughs> they weren't part of the system. Yeah. The first time they voted was when they were in their sixties and was for Barack Obama. And I was ready to just like disown them. I'm like, you guys need to vote. This isn't like, cool. But anyway, I, I had the experience, the experience of it being hard to, you know, assemble and to get your ideas out there and to create a platform. So I'm so excited for this, like this time and like being able to make change in this time. I I feel that way about social media in general. I mean, there, I have a love hate relationship. I know you do as well, but the pro of it is, I love, love it. It's, it's, it's incredibly impactful. It's incredibly empowering to have, you know, how do I say this? A a democracy of information in a way that there's just more voices being heard on a daily basis. There's less gatekeeping, obviously. Um, There's a lot of cons. There's a lot of cons, but we can't deny that, in my opinion, I think it benefits marginalized voices the most. And that's, I mean, there's absolutely still like huge hurdles to climb, especially with ship on Instagram and Facebook. And I mean, them just not being responsible when it comes to black and brown voices or activist voices. But I have found that when social media starts being something negative for me or, you know, showing up in ways that are just being an experience that I don't enjoy is because I'm doing it wrong. It's that I am not using social media in a way that is reflective of my values. Um, you know, just spending a lot of idle time looking at other people's lives and just like, just, like it's like junk food. Like it is, if I'm yeah. my Doritos, which I am apt to do, <laughs> I feel good afterwards. I'm like, all right, well, maybe I shouldn't have eaten the entire bag of Doritos. Like, yeah. and then I check myself and doesn't, I mean, I had cake for breakfast. I don't learn my lessons very fast, but <laughs> with social media, I mean, I'm, that's what I've been doing the whole time. I've been eating the crumbs. Of the oh my cake. God. <laughs> you made it cake on this episode. Oh man, I love this. Holy but, shit. You know, with social media, if I'm starting to feel down, I'm like, okay, check yourself. Mm-hmm. That even happened to me as early as this morning. I was looking at a girlfriend's Instagram who I love. I know this person to be the best person. And she has this really glossy, beautiful Instagram. She's wealthy. She's well-traveled, all of that. But it's really reflective of her real life. Like she is authentically you know, carefree and rich and a bougie, bad bitch. Yeah. Okay. All right. Like own that. That's great. Okay. I'm looking at it and I'm like her, like just one of her several like vacation homes is more beautiful than I think any home that I'll have or that I'm willing to have really. I mean, that's the real story. Right. Yeah. And and so I wake up, I'm feeling bad about myself looking at this first thing in the morning, looking at Instagram, looking at this person's life. And I'm like, Oh, they're better than mine. And I have to talk myself down from that. I have to say, Rebecca, like, what are you doing? What are you saying? Is this true? Do you really believe this? Right. Because after spending an hour of walking through my office with like all my toys and my cassette tapes and seeing my husband and giving him a hug and a cuddle in the dining room and asking what he's up to. And he's an artist too. He's a photographer. And he's like talking about like his new projects. And I'm like, dang, I love my life. Right. What's wrong with me? Right. Right. But what's wrong with me is that I'm conditioned just like all of us. That's the thing. Thank you for being honest. 
Because it happens to all of us. I don't, I can't, I can't lie. It's so bad. People think I'm bullshitting. It's like, I, I either feel like I'm going to be punished. Can I tell a quick story? I know that I get off. This is my, this is my artistic brain. So when I was in third grade and my friend, Nikki Massarini. Okay. Hi, Nikki. I love that name. (laughs) Nikki Massarini. Nikki Massarini is my best friend. And she was going to catechism class to get her confirmation or whatever. And she told me that she learned that when we lie, God puts a black spot on our hearts and it's like heavy, like lead. And if we keep lying, our hearts become so heavy and so black that we sink into hell. Oh shit. I know. What kind of shit? That was, that's intense for third grade. We're we're Catholic. We went to church in someone's backyard and got baptized in a pool. Like (laughs) (laughs) like like a different minister. Yeah. that stuck with me. Like that was the trauma. I can't imagine people who were that church. Yeah. Right. Whoa. Like, that trauma stuck with me. So now if I even try to attempt to tell a white lie, I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to hell. <laughs> I'm sinking into the bad place. So, oh my gosh. It's so funny. The shit we, we <laughs> totally internalized from that time. Funny. It's so sad. It's so fucked up. It's so fucked up. I love that. I love that you just did a minor, like I'm just going to take a detour to share my childhood dramas. <laughs> around around whether or not hell is real fuck dude it is it is this is all that makes you you tell me about the amount of authors you now have in the seven months when you're saying i'm looking around at my life going holy shit this is this is rad this is dope i'm loving this tell me you hang out with the coolest people can i tell you their names obviously (laughs) shout them from the rooftops let's go so in 2022, we're starting with a short list of six authors that we've hand-selected and I'm so thrilled to work with. Uh, the first is Julia Diaz. She's a third generation witch, a bruja from Cuba. Yes. Uh, she is, I mean, her first two books, Witchery and Plant Witchery, were huge bestsellers for Hay House. And she followed me from Hay House to come to Row House. So I'm so privileged yeah. to have her as a friend and a colleague. Um, the second book is by Trudy LeBron, who is a like brilliant, brilliant DEI consultant. She has her, her own brand of business coaching. Um, and that's all like equity informed. She's incredible. So she's writing the anti-racist business book. Oh my God. Yes. Trudy is like, I, I, every day I just go to her and I just sit there quietly in the back of that room of her Instagram. Yeah. And I'm privileged to be her friend. She has guided me in ways that like, I just, I'm so forever grateful for in business and in, in motherhood. She was a teen mom of two. I think she had two children by the time she was 16 years old. Um, she's just, shit. I mean, like talk about like a badass. She <laughs> is brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. So, so far, you know, couple of minor heavy hitters there. All right. Who else do we have on the lineup? Jesus. Well, right. number three is Maisha T. Hill. Oh, fuck. Check <laughs> your privilege. Yeah. 700,000. Minor little page I go to. Okay. All right. Great. So she's writing a book called Heal It Forward. Um, another oh. brilliant thing. So privileged. And then we have an emerging author because we're balancing our, our, um, authors basically in thirds. So we'll have our lead list. You know, yeah. we know we're going to, we're going to be bestsellers. We have our mid list, which are like strong books that we really believe in. And we know will do well. And then we have our emerging authors, 
who it's kind of like, this is a, like, it's a little bit of a gamble, but the information needs to be out there. Right. And it's going to be just so nourishing. So Brittany Carmona Holt is a full spectrum doula and she's writing a book called Tarot for Pregnancy. And oh, it's like shit. the book that's like every baby shower. She is my tarot reader, um, which sounds really fancy in Hollywood and weird. <laughs> I was going to say that is the most Hollywood part. I mean, she's my tarot reader. She's tarot reader. I mean... <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's only on the full moon of Gemini, though, that she comes over. I just have to make sure I smudge first. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So she, she is my tarot reader who I treat more like a therapist, but she's one of the <laughs> kindest, most authentic souls I've just ever met on the planet. And again, privileged to know her. Um, then we're following that up with a literary memoir, um, which is going to be beautiful, called Brown Enough by oh. Christopher Rivas. He is an actor, a speaker, a storyteller. He just finished his one-man play. Um, I'm sorry, he calls it a two-person play because he has a percussionist on stage. Um, the real James Bond was Dominican. So he's talking about his Dominican-American experience in Hollywood. He's on Mayan Bialik's uh, new show, Call Me Cat. He plays Oscar. So he's just, and he's like my whole heart. Yeah, the, look at you lighting yeah. up talking about him. Oh, I love him. And then the last author of the year is Miss... Tina Strawn, okay. uh, speaking of racism podcasts and the legacy trips. Um, yeah. she is anti-racist, uh, facilitator. She takes people. I'm, I get to do one, um, uh, in August, we go down to Alabama. I'm going to be one of the presenters. I'm leading meditations in between the groups. Um, we're going down to Alabama to the, um, the lynching memorial, uh, as people have nicknamed it yeah. and taking a group through there. But Tina is going to be talking about her book is called Are We Free Yet? And it's her journey with um, weed and Jamaica and being queer and this year that she spent in Jamaica, like finding herself. And and it's wow. (laughs) Shit, those are good. They are shit. Yeah, we're lucky. We're lucky ducks. Mm -hmm. You are. And you are lucky. And it also is a testament to the courage that you have to create the space mm-hmm. to attract these levels of humans. They're the best humans. They're the best They're the humans. Best human. And yes, it's luck. Yes. It's hard work. Yes. It's being a friend and being showing up in community. Like it's, it's, I'm so grateful for parents who were faithful people and taught me things like I have this direct connection and this is support with my creator. And that told me that, you know, when they say we're all God's children, they were being quite literal about it. Like this is your family for, you know, when I was five years or I'm sorry, a little bit older than five years old. Um, my parents were having a really, really bad argument. Um, downstairs in the kitchen, like screaming and yelling and everything. And it was because this was during, the AIDS crisis when they were still calling it gay cancer and all that. And there was a house who they needed an addition because they had to move their, their dying son into the house had AIDS. And my dad was like, I'm a Christian. I can't charge them. You know, like I can't, and others like we barely have food to feed our family. Like, how can you be doing this? And he's like, because they're our family. 
You know, it was yeah. like that was what it's it was. Like that. We, yeah. You know, right or wrong, and people you know be like, well, protect your own first. But it's like we didn't have a sense of our own. Like again, we didn't say the Pledge of Allegiance. We didn't believe in borders. We didn't, you know, like it. It wasn't. I grew up in a world where we're like we are one family. We are one thing, and to treat the least among us, you know, is how you treat your God, your Creator. So. I, I'm so grateful that I have these parents that put these values in me that allowed me to operate this way in the world because I am so blessed every single day, again and again and again, by people who show up for me like that. That is powerful. Fuck, that's powerful. Also, I was raised by wolves. Because the people will hear my story, they'll be like, wait a minute, I heard you all this bad stuff happening in your childhood. I'm like, yes, my parents were good people and terrible parents. Yes, <laughs> both can be true. Both Both can can be be true. true. (laughs) I I sit with that on the daily. My father, a wonderful human, a piss poor dad. And that can be true. And I think that's a part of the adulthood is that two things can be self-evident, right? We can have social media, right? We can have publishing. We can Mm -hmm. have being human. And all of it comes with both of those pieces. Both of those pieces. Yeah, I would love to hang out with my parents now. It's so interesting that my, how much my relationship with them healed. And, and this comes down to how I show up in business and everything that, you know, the courage to be who I am, because when they were alive, it was, they were my parents. They were my mom and dad. Right. I blamed them for a lot and they deserved it. You know, like they were people that had a lot of serious, serious trauma and abuse in their lives that didn't get the help they needed. And it transferred onto us. So the, when they, when they passed away, I was able to see them as people other than my parents. I was allowed to see them as just human beings. I met more of the friends. I heard more of the stories. I heard what they did yeah. for people. And I saw, you know, in my understanding and empathy and compassion for them, I was able to then reflect that back on myself yeah. and say, I'm not the perfect mother. I'm actually repeating a lot of the patterns, but I have this opportunity to see it and correct it. So it gave me, it allowed me to have so much forgiveness for myself. And, um, and just this relationship that's grown with my parents, that's just so much better. Like, I'm like, oh, please come back so I can hang out with you and tell you all this cool stuff. That we right. can laugh about. Wow. How, you know, that you have. <laughs> <laughs> Not, I was never even allowed to say fart. And still, like, even I just say, like, if I say fart, I start like, Ooh, my mom's going <laughs> to. still going to get you. Your heart is still going to turn with lead. That stuff sticks with us. That stuff is, that's real thing. That's the real shit. That's the real shit. I want to chat the last piece here, um, which has just been such a wonderful chat with you. When someone picks up one of your books from your new publishing company, what do you want them to feel? What is the movement that you want to create in their heart and in this world with these books? Well, it really depends on who's picking it up because I say that we create books by us for every reader. And that's also, it started out as being the tagline for my children's imprint, We Penny Press, um, because I think that representation is, is important for everybody. Um, you know, I would say, especially those in, in dominant culture, representation of people that they don't ordinarily interact with so that because the people in dominant culture have the most power to create fast change. Um, so I want readers to feel seen if their, you know, story is being reflected back, I want people to feel curious and inspired by new information. 
and, you know, curious in the way that like, I want to learn more. Like I didn't know this. So what more must I not know? I want people to feel held in the sense that they know that there's a place for them, even if the place isn't being represented in the book, like this, like what's different. We, we are talking a lot about social justice and racial justice in our books. Um, and all of our authors must be working through that lens, no matter what they're doing in life. Like that's a, a requirement that, that we have, but like with Trudy, Trudy's writing a business book. Like there's going to be just a lot about like just doing good business. And that has to be social justice and equity informed, right? Has to. So, yes. Trudy, the feedback that she was getting from other publishers was like, like, you know, your language is too casual or this is, you know, it just didn't fit into what was business. So I want people just like when I go into a classroom and I'm sitting in front of a, a, you know, a class full of brown kids and coming from a place that they come from and have understanding what it feels like to have a, you know, a hungry belly, like they see themselves in me and go, oh, well, of course I can be a writer. I want people reading these books to say like, well, of course I could be a business person because look at this stellar example of good business. Yep. Right. So it's, you know, we're writing books about other things other than oppression. We're writing books about business. We're writing books about love and life and finding ourselves and witchcraft. Why not? And pregnancy and birth and And all of it. Yeah. Wait, uh, wait. So you're saying that people are multidimensional and that sometimes some, I know it's hard to tell by social media sometimes, <laughs> but you're telling me that there's more to a story than just talking about systemic racism. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean, I know people know that about white people, right? Like cause you have romance, you get right? to go on vacation, but for the others, it's like, <laughs> Oh, you just don't talk about racism. All day? I mean, wait, what? Oh, you have, uh, oh, tarot. What? Okay. Yeah. And, imagine. and we've buried the lead, but on top of creating row house, she just, as you noticed there, just slid that in. She has another print, a whole other group. Let's talk about children's books. Let's talk about wheat and penny press. That's a whole hour. I know. I know. That's can you come back? Will you come back? And can we talk about I that? Come back. But I do want to give a taste of We Penny Press because that's, I mean, we could always use a lot of help there. Yes. Um, So We Penny Press publishes books that empower and inspire young kids. We put uh, the stories of marginalized characters at the center. Um, We have diverse authors. I have my uh, children's book series there. Zara's um, Big Messy series. So it's Big Messy Day, Big Messy Bedtime, Big Messy Playdate, Big Messy Goodbye, um, and more coming. We're very excited about it. Great. And, um, you know, it's doing really, really well, but as part of the, the publishing house, we have a nonprofit, the Wheat Penny Press Little Readers Big Change Initiative, and we bring in free books, author visits, workshops online and um, in person to kids grades K through eight in districts that are under-resourced. So a lot of title one schools, a lot of schools with, I say fewer books in their library than I have like sitting next to me right here on the shelf. It's terrible, but these kids deserve it. They appreciate it. We love doing it. And, um, it's really creating a, uh, or helping to create a new generation of kids that are interested in books and writing and and being writers. So, um, yeah, we penny press. That's why representation matters, A. And B, uh, inside of the show notes right at the bottom of this episode, we're going to link that so that you'll be able to find out more information and donate and put your money where your heart is. Absolutely. Because the the piece is when you say 
putting marginalized characters at the center. What exactly does that mean for people that have never seen any of your books? Well, just a fun fact, there are more children's books written about animals as the lead character than all other marginalized identities combined. So your kid is likely to learn their values from a dinosaur, which is great. Like dinosaurs rock (laughs) if you're white and you get to see white kids all the time and dinosaurs. But if you're black or brown or disabled or queer, you're just not seeing yourself represented in books. So like my series, Zara's Big Messy Day, features a biracial little girl, black and white, just like me, who struggles with big, messy emotions. I wrote the book as a love letter to my seven-year-old self. My mental health struggles started um, when I was eight years old. So this is the book I would have needed when I was seven. Uh, I didn't have health insurance. So a lot of my health care came from the state, um, social workers, like really wonderful social workers showing up for me. And it was a social worker who taught me um, visualization and meditation when I was 10 years old. His name is Cesar Colon. And he was with, with Burlington County, um, you know, human services, and he saved my life. So I just want to create that, that conversation with kids about, you know, our emotions and how worthy they are of attention and how worthy we are of teaching ourselves how to take care of ourselves. So those are what the big messy books are about. And um, it's, we have all kinds of colors and wacky personalities and <laughs> going on in the books (laughs) and allowing kids to feel seen, allowing kids to feel seen and heard and loved and represented out in this world. Can't believe it's taken this long, but sometimes we have to create the world we want to be a part of. And that's exactly what you do, Bex, in all areas of your life. Now people can understand why I say the world loves her. How could you not? Yeah, but they They do. It's all right though. It's okay. The people I love. The people, love exactly. The people that matter love you. And that's, that's what happens when you're such a fucking trailblazer. Oh that's- my gosh. So you're going to get in trouble for saying this stuff. I know we got to wrap it up, but you got to stop hyping me up. For I'm, real. I'm, keep hi- like I'm saying that like, Mm-mm. I stand on the shoulders of giants. Like of I'm course. doing, I'm doing the basic. I really want people to feel inspired to know that they, this is why we're here. This is why we're here. Like, I'm just doing the basic. I'm just trying to be a good steward of this gift of life that's been given to me. That's all. Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really calling on Jesus for someone who wants to complain that I'm just throwing the name around. I'm like, Jesus. Jesus in a manger. (laughs) Jesus in a baby manger. Oh my gosh. (laughs) On that note, I love you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing your brilliance and your heart and your vision. Thank you for being you. I don't care what anyone says. We love you. You're doing great in this world. I so appreciate you. Really, I do. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Full Body Fuck Yes podcast with me, Abby Gibb. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode. And it would mean the world if you leave a review so others know how kick-ass these episodes are. And I'm a real person over on Instagram. So tag me in an IG story at Abby Gibb and let me know what landed in your heart the most today. Thanks again for listening.